Hey, greetings, everyone. Lieutenant Colonel Alan West, Steadfast in Law Podcast. You know, we've had some good discussions about federalism, understanding that right and true relationship between the federal government and the states. And we've talked about how when you look at the Constitution of the United States of America, Article 1, Section 8, there are about 18 things that are specifically enumerated to the federal government. And Article 1 is in the legislative branch, uh, duties and responsibilities, because the legislative branch is really the most powerful branch of our three branches of government. Remember, basic civics, you know, legislative, judicial, and executive. But what happens when the federal government colors outside the lines? They pay no attention to their real enumerated powers, jurisdictions, those things that they have purview over. Well, the founding fathers were brilliant. That's why they put the 10th Amendment in there that basically says all of those powers not delegated to the federal government, Article 1, Section 8, are reserved to the states and to the people. But when that balance gets out of whack and the supremacy clause, a lot of people talk about supremacy clause and what the supremacy clause really does say that the federal government is supreme over the states as long as they're following the rule of law, the Constitution. But what happens when they don't? That's why the founding fathers put something in there, which was kind of like the break the little hammer out, hit the glass, pull down the lever. This is the emergency signal, the bat signal. Article 5, Convention of States, not Constitutional Convention, but Convention of States. See, if 34 states can come together and have their delegates that go and are representative of them, 34 states in agreement can submit an amendment to the Constitution of the United States of America to Congress. It has to be voted on by the Congress. But if 38 states can come together, 38 states can amend the Constitution of the United States of America. High watermark, of course, to get 38 out of 50 states to be able to do that. But it was that fail-safe thing that the founding fathers put in the Constitution. And so we're going to talk with Mark Meckler, who is the head of the Convention of States grassroots movement here in the United States of America, an incredibly growing organization, because we're getting to that point where maybe it's time to take out the little hammer, break the glass, and pull the emergency lever. That's what Oracle 5 Convention of States is all about. So stand by. Welcome to the Steadfast and Law Podcast. Let's restore our constitutional republic. Let's get back to the system of federalism. We'll be right back. You gotta light them up before they burn it down. Hey, greetings, everyone, and welcome back to the Steadfast and Law Podcast. And as I talked about in our monologue, we got to restore that right relationship between the federal government and the states. You know, the Constitution is very clear about the jurisdictions, the purview, the roles and duties, responsibilities of the federal government. Article 1, Section 8, it lists those things out. 
And when the federal government does not understand their enumerated powers and roles, that's why we have the 10th Amendment. And the 10th Amendment, as I spoke about earlier, says that all of those powers not delegated, specifically delegated to the federal government, are reserved to the states and to the people. And we got some folks in Washington, D.C. that don't really understand that. And so what did the founding fathers create for us? Kind of like that, you know, you get the little hammer, you break the glass, and you pull the emergency lever. It's the Article 5, Convention of States. Because they understood that in this constitutional republic, it was the free and independent states, as they said in the Declaration of Independence, that created these United States of America. So I couldn't think of anyone better to talk about this issue of Article 5, the Convention of States, restoring that right relationship between the federal government and the states, restoring federalism, than a dear friend of mine, Mark Meckler. And I'm going to tell you, in full disclosure, I support Mark I support the Convention of States. I support Article 5. I even have some people say, why would you do that? Why would you support Article 5? I said, well, you know, once upon a time I took an oath to support and defend the Constitution of the United States of America. So if it's in the Constitution, I'm going to support and I'm going to defend it. And the lady kind of backed off. So let me introduce you to Mark Meckler. He is the president and co-founder of the Convention of States Action the largest nationwide movement seeking to call seeking to call the first ever article 5 convention of states mark wasn't always interested in politics and that's a good thing he started his career as an internet attorney with extensive experience in technology law and he said on numerous occasions that he never held any political aspirations again that's a good thing he just wanted to pursue his career and raise his family without undue interference from the federal government in 2009, Mark co-founded the Tea Party Patriots, an organization I was very familiar with, the largest Tea Party group in the United States. As the result of Mark's leadership, the Tea Party grew to a massive nationwide movement, constitutional conservative grassroots movement that elected numerous members to the United States Congress, who some still hold powerful positions today. And Mark helped me to be elected back in 2010. Mark left the Tea Party Patriots in 2012 when it became clear that most Tea Party politicians, some of them, yes, were unwilling to keep their campaign promise to drain the swamp in D.C. The pull of power and money in Washington was too strong for most politicians to resist. And Mark realized that true reform would never happen from within the nation's capital. So he left the Tea Party and he founded the Citizens for Self-Governance and launched a class action lawsuit against the Internal Revenue Service. We may need Mark to launch another lawsuit against the 87,000 new IRS agents. The IRS had unlawfully, unethically, and unconstitutionally targeted Tea Party groups, and Mark led the only successful class action lawsuit against the IRS to make targeted victims whole. Founded in 2013, the Convention of States movement has grown under Mark's leadership to 5 million supporters and 15 states, maybe we'll get an update on that, that have called for a convention. It takes 34 states to call for a convention of states, so the effort is nearly halfway complete. Mark is dedicated to the principles enshrined in our Constitution. He spent a lifetime fighting for limited government and constitutional rights, including free speech, something that I had a little issue with TikTok on last week. And he takes those principles into whatever endeavor he pursues. The federal government, Mark believes, will never reform itself. But as more and more patriots answer the call to hold Washington accountable, the people and the states can finally restore their rightful place in our system of governance. Mark, 
thanks so much for being here on the Steadfast and Law podcast. Hey, it's an absolute honor to be with you. Nobody I'd rather be with tonight. Well, well, don't let your wife hear you say that, okay? <laughs> but let's talk about, you know, you're now down in the Austin area, down in Travis County, Texas. Talk about the transformation, your movement coming from California. You're the right type of Californian that we want to see, you know, coming here from Texas, a good, strong constitution conservative. So what was the, the, the thing, the impetus that caused you to migrate here to Texas? Yeah, so I was born and raised in Southern California. When Patty and I got married 29 years ago, we moved to Northern California. I never expected to leave California, but California went literally insane. It's all the stuff that everybody knows about. The taxes went crazy. The regulations went crazy. I lived in a small town in the mountains in Northern California called Grass Valley. I really never expected it to chase us up there. And finally, really what happened is... When the, when the Trump election happened, people lost their minds. <laughs> and what people who were my friends, Alan, people who I my kids had gone to school with, I coached the soccer team their kids were on. They went from being my friends to calling me a Nazi. Mm-hmm. And I got to the point where it's like, I don't really want to live in a place like this anymore. I want to live surrounded by people who share my values. I want to live in a place where even people who don't share my values are at least relatively polite to each other. And I'd always felt called to Texas. There's a Texas is different than any other state in the country. I've been in almost all of them, 48 states. And we Texans, as I'm proud to call yes. myself now, we're pretty sure that we're the biggest and the best. And there is a patriotism in Texas It's just different than anywhere else. It's the only state that I know that is, I would call, truly patriotic. We love Texas. We love being Texans. And so I always felt called to be in a place like that where I could be really proud of where I lived. Mm -hmm. And look, it's a a free state. The tax system is better. There's less regulation. Now, it's got its own problems, to be fair. And I, I certainly was a supporter of yours and an endorser of yours when you were running against Governor Abbott because I think he's one of the biggest problems here. Uh, but it's better than most states in the union right now. So mm-hmm. it was for my family. And then the last thing I would say that was really important to me, Alan, I have two kids, grown kids. They were young adults at the time that we moved. My daughter was at Hillsdale College. My son was in the Marine Corps. And I didn't want to be the magnet that caused them to come back to California. I wanted to move somewhere where if they wanted to come home and be with us, that they would have a place where they would be free and they would have opportunity. So that's why I was proud to move to Texas and call Texas my home. Well, we're proud to have you here. And, you know, when you think about Texas, so many people have come here in search of that, those principles of individual sovereignty, liberty and freedom. And when you compare and contrast that with California and remember, California used to be a red state. I mean, California gave us Richard Nixon. California gave us Ronald Reagan. But now you have people in California that are moving to Mexico because they cannot afford the rent there in California. You have people in California that are going to buy groceries in Mexico, going to get gasoline in Mexico. What is it about the progressive socialist leftist mentality that they believe that the rest of the nation should be like California? We'll be back after a quick break. Hi, I'm Kent Charnig, and I'm the founder of El Paso County, Colorado Progressive Veterans. Don't worry, we're not crazy tree huggers, but we do have an amazing podcast talking about nothing but the military and veterans. Please check us out, epccpv.org. 
Thank you. Talk to you soon. Yeah, you know, this is a, a problem that I think about all the time as their cities descend into chaos, uh, as drug addicts and homeless take over their streets. What are they thinking? And, and why do they keep voting for this stuff? And I think there's a couple of reasons as best I can tell. One is that the leftist mentality is that they look out at the world and they see the world as they believe it is, not as it is. As conservatives, we have this acquired taste for reality. Uh, certain things just are, right? Yeah. You know, if you make it easy for homeless people to be on the streets, then homeless people will be on your streets. If you make it easy for criminals to get out of jail, there'll be a lot of criminals on your streets. That's just reality, right? Yeah. And and people on the left, they look at it and think, well, if we're just nice to homeless people, maybe the homeless problem will go away. If if we just let criminals get out and we tell them that we feel bad for the circumstances in which they grew up, maybe they'll just decide not to be criminals. So those, that's wishful thinking or what I call wish casting. And they govern based on this kind of wishful thinking about the world. Mm -hmm. And so people who are realists, people who understand what reality actually looks like and how things work, we end up having to leave because we understand, like, no matter what they think about reality, at some point you're going to run into it like a brick wall. Well, the amazing thing is that you also have people that are leaving California, Illinois, New York. They're moving to very good, strong red states, and they bring that same failed philosophy and ideology. When you, you talked about Texas, when you look at Texas and all the major population centers here, and, and you know you're in Austin, Travis County, I'm up here in the Dallas County area, they're exactly the same as what you see in California with the crime, with the homeless issues, with the, 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 the deplorable roads. I mean, you just name it, uh, the wokeness that is out there. Why is it that we have people that are doing what I call the Einstein theory of insanity? They continue to do the exact same thing, think they're going to get different results, and they're bringing it into successful red states. You know, here's my theory on that, Alan. If if you look at it, you mentioned it's the metro areas, Austin, Dallas, Houston, San Antonio, El Paso. You get into the metro areas, although I got to say El Paso is starting to swing the other yeah, way because of the is. border, right? But when you get into the metro areas, a lot of the reason that people are moving to those metro areas is that their companies are moving and they're moving from places like California and New York. So I think a lot of the folks, an inordinate percentage of the folks that are moving there are moving there for the jobs. They're not moving there for the politics. And if you look at and when you get into the outer lying areas, you know, like I live in Williamson. Or I'm just on the edge of Williamson County mm -hmm. outside Travis County, way more conservative. It's starting to get bluer, but way more conservative than Travis County. And this is true as you move into the counties outside of yes. Dallas and, and any of these major areas. And the reason for that, I believe, is if you move to the state and you move from California like me, then you're going to seek an area that is more red, that comports with your philosophy. You know, we, we did some exit polling in the race, the Beto O'Rourke Ted Cruz race. Mm -hmm. And one of the most interesting things we found out about that is that 68% of Californians that had transplanted to Texas that voted in that race considered themselves Republicans and voted for Ted Cruz. And in fact... California transplants voted for Ted Cruz at a higher per capita rate than Texas residents. And so what we're losing in the metro areas, we're losing the young people in the metro areas. But by and large, over two thirds of the people who are coming in here are conservatives. Well, it's interesting because I think Elon Musk uh, coined this phrase, 
to California instead of moving here, you need to come here and understand you're a refugee and not a disciple. Uh, yeah. and, and that's the critical thing we have to do now. So let's talk about you starting the uh, Tea Party Patriots movement and really explain, because a lot of folks from the left, they were successful in demonizing the Tea Party movement, which was really a fiscal conservative-based movement. So what was your inspiration and impetus to start the Tea Party Patriots? I mean, the simple thing was Rick Santelli, who's a financial reporter mm -hmm. on CNBC one day. He, he's known for being kind of wild, and he reports from the floor of the Chicago Mercantile. Yeah. And one day somebody asks him about the TARP bailout, and it's ancient history now. And and in the amount of money it was back then, Helen, it seems like it was small fry compared to the $7 trillion or whatever they're burning right now. But yeah. he was asked about it, and he said it was outrageous. It was un-American. We're making people who had made their mortgage payments, who did all the right things, who lived conservatively, essentially pay off the mortgages for people who hadn't. People who had bought second homes or mm -hmm. refinanced their houses to buy a boat or remodel or whatever. Those, the stable conservative people were going to have to pay off those debts. And he just thought that was outrageous. And he got attacked for it. And he mm -hmm. said, we should hold a tea party on the shores of Lake Michigan because he's there at Chicago Merck, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And he said we should do it on July 4th, which was many months in the future. That was in February. But a bunch of people said, wait, this went viral. We should do it right now. And so I was among the first to hold a Tea Party protest at the state capitol in Sacramento. A group of us then got together after that and said we should do the April 15th Tea Party. It was about fidelity to the Constitution, support for free markets, mm -hmm. uh, and just this is what we were all about. It was not. It was about fiscal responsibility. They turned it into some, like they always do, it was yeah. white supremacist, it was Nazi, it was racist, it was homophobic. It was all the things that they say about us today were the exact same attacks that they did back then. But mm -hmm. the numbers, by the numbers, because we ultimately had 23 million people involved, we polled our folks, 28% of people who were involved were Democrats and independents. So it wasn't yeah. just right wing, it wasn't yeah. just Republican, it wasn't any particular race really just people who love the country and understood its foundations. Yeah, I absolutely remember it. And the interesting thing was that no one thought the movement was serious. As a member of uh, Nancy Pelosi called it an astroturf movement. I recall that until all of a sudden 63 seats flipped in 2010. And they realized that this was for real. And of course, Barack Obama two years later was coming up for re-election. And then we saw the IRS. We saw Lois Lerner and what they ended up doing, targeting the, uh, the constitutional conservative grassroots movement. Tell us about your lawsuit that you brought against them, And why do you think you were successful in that class action lawsuit? Man, first, I got to say this is fresh on my mind because until two weeks ago, Lois Lerner's deposition was still under seal. And we couldn't get the court to release it. We had to spend another $50,000 continuing to fight about this in the last several months to get them to unseal her deposition. And it's out there in the public now. I'd recommend you go look it up. And you'll see about her hatred and disdain for people like us. And wackos and, and a-holes and all the stuff that she called us. This is a public servant, right? Mm -hmm. And about all the lists that she helped create. If you have the name Tea Party in your organization – they were going to tie you up in knots, and they were going to do extra investigation on you. They they asked Tea Party groups, I know, uh, tell us the content of your prayers. Tell us the books you recommend mm -hmm. people read. Give us the transcript of every speech ever given. It. I mean, these are things that are just completely, radically unconstitutional. And so what happened for me, Alan, is 
I find myself in this position. I know you do too all the time is you're sitting there and you're thinking, is somebody going to do something about this? Yeah. Like somebody should really do something about this. And you look around, you look at the people who should be doing something about it. And you think they're on TV, they're talking about it. And, and from my perspective, and I don't want to name names, I don't like to bash people, but the television lawyers and the conservative movement, <laughs> they were on TV, they were talking about it, they're getting all this press, they're raising money for their organizations. I'm calling up and saying, hey, are you going to sue? Because uh, I got all these people that are getting burned by this. Are you going to do something? And they would say, well, we're not sure, we're investigating. And finally, Ellen, I did, and again, I know you've been in this position. I looked in the mirror, I'm like, I guess I got to do something. Yep. I got, I'm willing. So if I not me, up. then who? But yeah. And so you do, to me, this is duty, right? It's yes. not because you want to, it's not, you don't want this to be your fight, but you look, somebody's got to do it. So I'll do it. And so we raised millions of dollars. We fired up a class action against the IRS. The other lawyers who ultimately came along behind us all filed in DC. That's where the TV is. That's where the prestige is. We filed in Cincinnati because that's where the IRS was that was doing this. Mm -hmm. And honestly, I think that's part of the key to why we ultimately beat them because we went after the office, the the determinations office that was tying up all these groups. Instead of filing suit in some D.C. court with some D.C. judge who hates us, there were regular people in the Cincinnati District Court. And so we went after them. We litigated for four and a half years. Ultimately, they were forced to settle. One last thing I want to say about it that I think is really important. The settlement came out of the Jeff Sessions DOJ. So this is after Trump takes over, right? Mm-hmm. And we're trying to get them to settle, and they're behaving just as poorly as they did during the whole thing. This is the Sessions DOJ now. It's the Trump DOJ. And literally, on a personal level, it cost me over $50,000 because the IRS came after me personally. All I was doing was funding it. I wasn't even a plaintiff. So eventually we go to the sessions DOJ and this is what happened. We just said, look, it's the you're the same as the as the Obama DOJ. And if you don't settle with us, we're going to go out and we're going to start doing PR saying you're the same as the Obama DOJ. And they didn't listen to us. And so I feel really blessed. Kim Strassel of The Wall Street Journal wrote a op ed saying, look, the same <laughs> new boss, same as the old boss. Yeah. And within two days, they called us. To make a settlement. And I'm going to say something I'm not supposed to say. I don't really care, which is they they made us two settlement offers, $3.7 million or $1 million and an apology letter. And we told them what they could do with the apology letter. Yeah. And we took the $3.7 million and distributed to the groups that were still left. That's absolutely perfect. And, you know, we have to look at what you did as a blueprint because with this Inflation Reduction Act and, you know, $80 billion for 87,000 new IRS agents who one of the hiring criteria was they've got to be comfortable carrying a weapon, being armed, and they have to be comfortable with the use of deadly force. Where did this come from? Yeah, I mean, that is mind blowing to me. And what it is evidence of is an overall aspect of now what I call the police state, right? Mm -hmm. We've known this as the deep state. It's completely corrupt. Now it's been actually physically weaponized against conservatives, IRS agents. We know that they bought millions of rounds of ammunition. Mm -hmm. We got heavily armed IRS agents. This is not the country that the founders intended. All these law enforcement agencies at the federal level carrying around firearms, prepared to use deadly force, 
against the American people. This is just plain wrong. And this is part of the reason that we formed up the Convention of States, because they're never going to stop doing this in D.C. They like this power. And so if we don't stop them, if you and I don't step into the fray, Mm -hmm. if we don't do our duty as citizens, they're going to continue to do this stuff. And this is really a bipartisan thing, as you just brought up with the Sessions DOJ. It was really no different from the Obama DOJ. So there is a power vacuum in Washington, D.C. R&D doesn't matter. It's all about the concentration of power. So let's talk about that. You have started this Article 5 Convention of States. And as I said, you got some people out there that I'll be very honest, they're stuck on stupid. You know, you say that you support the Constitution and you believe in the Constitution, but then I'll say, no, 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 but, but but we can't do this thing. Well, either you believe and support the Constitution or not. So let's talk about some of the, the critics that you have out there, some of the things that they're saying. Runaway convention, it can't be controlled. You're just, you know, using this to elevate yourself. I, I find it ludicrous uh, when you look at the people that are supporting you. And the founders put it in the Constitution for a reason. Like I said, break glass in case of emergency. We're in that case of emergency where we're losing that relationship between the federal government and the states. So talk to us about what are the things that you're facing and talk to how, how do you defeat some of the, you know, the, the little chihuahuas that are out there, <laughs> you know, nipping at your heels. Yeah. Look, I think the most important thing that I can say, Alan, is when you look at a movement, what you should look at, or you look at an organization, look at who the supporters are and who the detractors are. I don't expect every person to be an expert on Article 5. I am because it's what I do for a living now. It's all I do, right? But I don't expect everybody to do that. You got lives. You got other things you're interested in. Politics are complicated. So shorthand is look at the people you respect and try to figure out what they think about something. I do this all the time. I don't know about everything. So I want to know what does Alan West think about it? I'm I'm not an expert on that. Like if I'm going to look at military matters, a bunch of international relations stuff, one of the first things I'm going to do is look at what you think because you have a lot more experience in that stuff than I do, right? Mm-hmm. And I'm going to look at other people I respect in the field. So if you look at convention estates through that lens, what you can see is every single conservative figure who is nationally known, somebody whose name you would know off the top of your head, if they've talked about convention estates, they're in support of it. Obviously, you, it was Limbaugh, God rest his soul, when he was alive. A lot of them are endorsers like Beck, Shapiro, Hannity. Like these are serious Mark thinkers. Mark Levin. These are serious yeah. thinkers who spent the time. And what the Chihuahuas say, which is so funny, like all of these people are either bought out by George Soros, which is ridiculous, or they're just so stupid they don't understand they've been duped by the left. And this is just crazy. And then if you look at the opposite side of the equation, look at who the enemies are. And it's not hard to do this, by the way. Five years ago, on Good Friday, literally, a group led by George Soros, Common Cause, Center on Budget and Policy Priorities, put out a press release. Largest group of signatories of any press release in the history of the American left. Over 250 groups have signed that press release. It's Planned Parenthood, it's La Raza, it's MoveOn.org, it's Daily Cause, it's the Socialist Party of America, it's Planned Parenthood. In other words, the baby killers, the Marxists, the communists, the America haters are against Convention of States. All the great patriots you know are in favor. Here's what I say, Alan. I don't even have to know the issue. If you lay that out for me and you ask me which side I'm on, it's like, well, I'm on Alan West's side and Mark Levin's side. I don't, I'm not on Planned Parenthood's side. I'm, I've never found myself on that side. So 
if you know who's on what side of the playing field, which side of the chessboard, I think you can choose your side of the chessboard. And unfortunately, the Chihuahuas on the right, and there are some of them like the John Birch Society, uh, some ladies from Eagle Forum that attack us every day and every, you know, in and out. They say, you and I are now in league with George Soros. I mean, what do you even say to that? Yeah. Well, it's, it's laughable, but I think the thing that they don't realize is that early on, George Soros, Hillary Clinton, they were supportive of this because they thought that they could use it for an ideological agenda. They thought that they could use it to reverse Citizens United. They did not really study and understand that this is something that has to do with constitutionalism. This is something that has to do with understanding that relationship between the federal government, which they love, pushing things down from on high, and the states and the 10th Amendment. And so as soon as they realized what this was about, they jumped ship. Oh, yeah. And that's the part that I don't understand why people aren't following through and studying and understand what is what what is happening. So how do you get your message out? Let's talk about the structure. You know, I've been honored to go to many different states with you and you got some incredible. I mean, you know, competent, astute, resilient, resolute, grassroots activists out there. How do you organize yourself with this movement across the United States of America? So, you know, we started nine years ago. So we are, of course, now with 5 million people in overnight success. (laughs) We've (laughs) passed in 19 states. You had said 15 in the opening. You asked for an update. So four states this year. We're up over the halfway mark, 19 states. And the way it's organized is odd, I would say. You know, people are used to organizations where the CEO, which is me in this case, you know, we're at the top of the organizational pyramid. We have an organizational chart and the very bottom of the chart is Mark Meckler. Mm-hmm. And the reason I'm on the bottom of the chart is because we believe in servant leadership. Yes. My job is to serve everybody in the whole organization. And if something's going wrong and it's broken and people feel unserved and they don't have the resources or whatever they need, that's on me. And then I've got an executive team, a leadership team of nine people that would be the next layer sort of above me in that chart. And then as you move out on a national staff level now, we have 80 employees, which is blowing my mind that it's become this big. No office space. And I think that's really important. I work from home. Everybody else works from home. None of the money that's raised to do this goes to some fancy office in D.C. Mm -hmm. We don't need that and we'll never have that. That's not who we are. We're grassroots. And then beyond that, out in the field, I have regional directors that are out there in the field that are paid employees. And then the rest of the organization, 5 million people, all volunteers. Mm-hmm. And I'll give you a really incredible number, Alan. You know, 5 million sounds like a lot. It is a big number. But here's the real number that really matters to me. I want to know who's really working, who's trained, who has an actual position and, and responsibilities, who's doing their duty day in and day out in the fight. And I would call those people actually volunteer employees. We couldn't mm-hmm. operate without them. So if you if you want to know how many employees Convention of States really has, at this point, it's about 9,832 at the last wow. count. People who hold leadership positions, they're certified, trained in those positions. We actually, they're tracking the amount of work they put in. That's the company. So if you think about, well, what is this company? Well, it's a company that has almost 10,000 employees They're in every state in the United States of America. They're in every legislative district in the United States of America. Those are the people that you meet when you're out in the field. 
So what's the next uh, step? I mean, we've got a very important midterm election coming up. You know, that's the 25-meter target. So let's talk about the 25-meter target, and let's talk about your distant target. So what's the near-term target? What's the long-term objective? Yeah, so I would say our teams, and, and right before I was with you tonight, I was on with my Minnesota team. They're focused. They've been focused on the primaries, making sure that we elect good candidates, good conservatives, and in our case, people who support convention estates in the legislature, will be involved in this cycle in over 450 elections at the state level. So people think at convention estates, like, oh, you're the guys pushing for convention. Well, yeah, that's true at the top line. But we're also involved in elections all over the country. We did 250 in the last cycle, over 450 in this cycle. I was just on with my Minnesota team. They blasted through the primaries, got a bunch of great people. Now they're moving into the general Minnesota is a split legislature, one house held by Republicans, one house held by Democrats, only split legislature in the country that's going to be up in this cycle. And they're going to flip that second house. I think they're going to turn it red. So, man, that's a 25 meter target right in front of us. That's why I was on with that team right before I was on with you. Actually, by the way, I think Maine has a chance of flipping in this cycle. It's both houses, but that that house and that Senate go back and forth. Yeah. I think it looks pretty good for Republicans in Maine. They got a good governor's candidate at the top of the ticket who's been governor there, LePage, before. And I think it's a red cycle. I think they could flip. Uh, and then for 23, by the way, in the elections, I'm looking at Virginia. We flipped Virginia's house, the House of Delegates, in the last yeah. cycle. And people want to know specifically, like, what are we doing? There was one seat in the Virginia House of Delegates that flipped it. it was the, they only won by one seat. Mm-hmm. And that seat was won in a recount. And that delegate, I'm proud to say, is a convention of states district captain. There were 150 volunteers in her district who made over 1,200 phone calls to low propensity voters. And in the recount, she won by 115 votes. So I think you could say that last seat was definitely won by convention of states. So I'm really proud of them. And we're doing that all over the country. That's our focus here in the next few months. And what's your long-term objective? Look, long-term is, there's two. The the shorter long-term objective is to get to convention, to get 15 more states done, call the convention, propose amendments to restrain federal tyranny, and get those amendments ratified by 38 states. When we do that, we won't be done. We'll just be getting started. And Mm -hmm. the reason I say that is because if we don't restore an attitude of self-governance, the political muscle, the sense of duty in the citizenry to then hold their state governments accountable, then we're just going to lose the country anyway. And so what we're building in the long term is the largest self-governing grassroots army in American history. I think we actually have that army already, but we're at about 5 million. I think we need to be at 35 million to really stabilize and save the country. That's my long-term goal. Well, excellent. How can people follow you and all the work that Convention of States is doing? And because uh, I'm sure that there are many people across the country saying, I've never heard of this. I want to be able to plug in in my respective state. How can they do that? Yeah, go to conventionofstates.com. Sign the petition first so that your state legislators, even in the past states, it's important they know you still support it. And then click on the Take Action tab. And, and this is the main thing. Look, it's one of the things I love about you, Alan. There's lots of talking heads out there. And I realize you and I are talking here, but you're an action guy. Like you've been in the fight for a long time and you actually do things and you run for things and you work at things. And so click on the take action tab. Be like my friend, Alan, be like me, be in the fight. 
volunteer, get involved. We'll put you to work. There's all kinds of stuff you can do from in-person to internet to phone calling to writing, whatever you like. We got a spot for you at conventionestates.com. How does a person, you know, if we get to that long-range objective, how does a person become a delegate to go for, a, be a part of the Convention of States? You know, the, the state legislature is going to choose their own delegates. So the Texas legislature, both houses will choose their delegates. So here's the way I think you got the best chance of doing it. Get involved with Convention of States, become a prominent known activist, build your expertise, because when it's time for convention, the legislature is going to be looking around and saying, all right, who knows this stuff? And I can promise you, there's going to be a whole bunch of people from convention estates that the legislature taps and says, we want you to go with our delegation. Well, that's great. Mark, is there something that I missed that you want to get out there? Not at all. I just, I, look, Alan, I want to thank you for years of friendship. Oh, and you and I go way back. And, yeah. uh, you know, we, we both came into politics through the Tea Party movement. Yes. I followed you before I knew you. You've been a great friend and a great supporter. You're always a humble warrior, and I just appreciate being in the fight with you, brother. And tell everyone, when is the National Convention down in Orlando? Say that again? The National Convention down in Orlando is when? Yeah, so down in Orlando, uh, the 6th through the 9th, it's sold out already. And this is, it's an unbelievable thing to me. 600 people will be attending. These are all trained, certified Convention of States leaders from around the country, Alan. So when you get down there, I promise you we're going to knock your socks off with the quality of folks you're going to be speaking well, to. Well, good. Maybe you need to have a breakout room for the, you know, 600 to seven or 800 folks that also want to attend. Okay? Uh, maybe next year. All right. Mark, it's a pleasure and an honor. Thank you for being here with us on the Steadfast and Law podcast. And we are in this fight. Uh, for me, it's so important because, as I have articulated, a member of the West family has been serving this country in uniform since World War II to the present day. And it means a lot to me to pass on this great nation to my children and to my grandchildren. And patriots like you are on the front lines making sure that happens. So you always got me ready to stand on the high ground with you. So God bless you and thank you so very much, Mark. God bless you too. Thanks, Alan. Hey, ladies and gentlemen, thank you so very much for joining us on the Steadfast and Law podcast. A special shout out and thanks to my dear friend, fellow patriot Mark Meckler, the president of the Convention of States Article 5 organization. And as always, if you like what you're seeing and hearing here, please click that like button and also share it with others because this is all about saving the longest running constitutional republic that the world has ever known for future generations. That's why we're here to inform, to educate, and to activate you to also stand in the line of the great patriots that have gone before us and that will come after us. God bless you all. Have a good night. Before they burn it down